Psalm chapter 1. If you have your Bible, open, open up to Psalm 1. Uh, we'll also make a little pit stop in Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4 to, today. But if you have your bulletin, both of those passages are on the back of your bulletin uh, just, just as well. But we are continuing our series over being gospel-rooted. So for the rest of the month of March, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be gospel-rooted. So let me kind of remind you where we were last week, and then I'll connect this up to where we are this week and kind of where where we're going to be going. But last week we talked about how we root into the gospel by knowing the story of of the gospel. And we did that by by looking at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, by saying we, we know the story by delightfully meditating on the story, thinking about it, telling it to one another, loving it. Uh, But then Psalm 2, um, by knowing the Messiah, that's what Psalm 2 is all about, is reflecting on the anointed one of God and and what God's been doing in his promise from from Genesis 1 all the way through Jesus through now. And so we want to root into that story. We want to know that story. So today we're going to kind of dive a little bit more into that idea of meditation, delightful meditation. And that's, that's hard, I think. Because I, I don't know, maybe I'm just weird, but have you guys ever read scripture and then left frustrated? Because that's, that's happened to me before. Like, I, don't get me wrong, like I love scripture, but there are days that I like open it up and you, know, you spend 10, 15 minutes reading it. And you're like, I didn't understand a word of that and I feel like I wasted my time. Anybody ever feel, maybe I'm it, I don't know, but ever feel, feel that way? And what is it that makes something frustrating like that? And I think it's this, I think we tend to get frustrated when something doesn't do what we expect it to do. See if I can give, give an example of, of that. Whenever uh, Haley and I first moved here, Pastor David and Kinsey invited us to go with them up to Clovis to the rock climbing gym in, in Clovis. It's like, oh man, that sounds super fun. Let me tell you, rock climbing is not fun. It's horrible. It's, 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 it's not fun at all. And I'll tell you why it's not fun. I'm not good at it. That's, that's why it's not fun. So have you ever seen anybody... So when you go into the gym, they have like bouldering. And so it's like, oh, this is fun. And you can like jump up and touch the top rock and it's great. And then the guy that runs the place is like, oh, that's not how you boulder. You've got to start off like this. I'm like, that's the most complicated way to start. Like I'm already taller than that. Why do I have to start down there? Right, you guys ever, ever done this at all? It's frustrating and I'm not good at it. And, and like I'm not saying that like I'm, I'm super athletic or anything like that, but, but generally I can like hold my own in sports or in different things from time to time. I'm not the best and not the worst, but like there's just something about rock climbing. I can't do it. I don't have the grip strength. I don't know how to bend my body in that ways. And, and Pastor David's in there like, look guys, no hands like running up the wall like Spider-Man. And it's frustrating to me. Because I walk in and I expect to be able to just, you know, grab a rock and climb it and it shouldn't be a big deal. And I can't do it. You guys have experiences like this where you expect to be able to do something. Then when you can't, you get frustrated about it. Um, You don't have to have that picture up there, Kelsey. I just want to show my frustration of of that. Um, This is right when when you get up in the morning and you're going to work and you go to start your car and your car doesn't start. That's frustrating. Why? Because you expected your car to start and now it doesn't. Or uh, this is when, when your roommate washes the dishes with their body wash rather than like dish soap. Why would you do that? I don't, you don't expect that to be done that way, right? Or uh, this is when your, your cell phone bill goes up $250 in a month and so you call them and they're like, that was actually the promotional price. If you would have read the contract, you uh, signed up for only three months of that and now it goes up an extra $250 for the rest of your life. Oh, and you're contracted in forever and you can't get out of it, right? Do you guys have experiences like, like this? Where things just don't go the way you expect them to. 
They don't go the way you want them to, and you end up frustrated. And I think this is exactly what happens with, with Scripture because we, we carry these expectations and assumptions to, to the text, and we walk away frustrated if those expectations or those assumptions aren't met. But, but what, if, what if those expectations are faulty? What if we've been trained to approach the text in a way that really isn't what the Bible's intended for? And what if when we're doing that, really we're just setting ourselves up for failure, right? So, so what are the expectations that we tend to approach Scripture with from time to time? Well, uh, sometimes I think we teach that every text demands you pull out some sort of like primary lesson for your life today. It's like the, the Bible fortune cookie, right? That like if you open up the Bible, you'll read your fortune cookie and it'll tell you what to do and you can go and do it and be happy and you don't have to worry about anything. And then, like we talked about last week, you read Genesis 6 and the Nephilim, and I don't know, if, if that's your Bible fortune cookie for the day, I guess you're out of luck, right? Because like, what do I do with this, right? It gets, it gets frustrating, or uh, that, that understanding Scripture should always be simple and clear and really easy to understand, and if you don't understand it, then something's wrong with you, and... But, but there are times that it's just difficult or uh, that, that Scripture is just all about gaining more information. And the more information you can pour into your head, the better Christian you can be. But you and I both know people that, that have incredible knowledge of Scripture and yet live nothing like Jesus, right? So what, what is Scripture in reality? I think if we were just be honest for a few minutes and, and you go in and read this, Scripture in, in reality... It's weird and confusing at times, right? You ever read the book of Ruth? Like, why is Ruth going and sleeping at Boaz's feet? Like, what's, what's going on there? Or, uh, or um, the story of, of Jacob and, and getting married, and like, he doesn't recognize Leah until after their wedding night. Like, how? I don't understand. <laughs> you guys feel that way sometimes. This is just weird. I don't, I don't understand. And there's sometimes when Scripture is like, it, it kind of makes you cringe a little bit. There's like polygamy and stuff in there and, and holy war and God telling King Saul to, to kill all the Amalekites, including the children. And it's just like, whoa, I, I wasn't prepared for, for that. And, and there's these miracles and unexpected and unexplainable happenings. And, and no matter where you fall in the modern American political spectrum, you'll find something to offend you. You'll find something that you disagree with or something that disagrees with, with you in some ways. And what happens when reality falls short of expectations? It's like trying to go rock climbing with no grip strength. You don't get much rock climbing done and you feel frustrated when, when you leave. So what do we do? How do we root ourselves into ancient Jewish literature? See, if you guys don't know, that, that, that's what we're reading. Ancient Jewish literature. How, how do we root ourselves into that some 2,000 years after the canon's been closed? And I want to start off again in Psalm 1. So, so remember Psalm, Psalm 1? Uh, this is the kickoff psalm uh, that's going to talk about how an ideal Israelite or an ideal Bible reader should read God's instruction, particularly for those Israelites in Babylonian exile. What are you supposed to do when you don't have a temple to go worship at? What are you supposed to do when it seems like every standard and normal practice that you used to do, you, you can't do anymore? Psalm 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. 
He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. So here's what I want to try to do today. Um, Full disclosure, this sermon is kind of unlike most sermons I preach. Generally, the little sub-points I have are kind of just supportive. Um... This one's going to feel a little bit different. It's a little bit more old-fashioned, maybe, of a sermon than what I usually preach, and hopefully that's okay. Uh, but I want to be very practical about this. Because I believe, right, and you know this, that as, as Christians, we, sh- we should root ourselves in this. If we're going to root ourselves in this, what does that mean? We should probably read it from time to time. And not just read it on Sunday mornings. Again, like, I'm not trying to step on toes in any of the, but, but if the only time you get scriptures on Sunday mornings you're not getting enough to feed your life. I, I promise you, you're not getting enough, enough to feed your life. And so, how do we go about doing this? So, so rather than asking what should we expect from Scripture this morning, what I want to do is start by asking what does Scripture expect from us? What, what is the ideal reader of the Bible? How do we root into this story? And this is what Psalms 1 is telling us. It's describing the ideal reader of Scripture. So, so what is the ideal reader of Scripture? He or she's not the one that walks in the way of the wicked or stands in the pathway of the sinners or sets in the company of mockers. But instead, verse 2, the, the ideal reader of Scripture is one who delights in the Lord's instruction and meditates on it day and night. And then we get this word meditating, which is a really weird word, right? Because how often do you use the word meditating in modern church world. We, we don't, because meditating is usually seen like opposite of modern church world, because I don't know about you guys, but when I hear meditating, I think like crossing your legs and saying, ohm. Is that... And most Christians don't do that, because that's like an Eastern practice. We're like, no, 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 we don't. We, it's not about emptying your minds. But right here, Psalms uses the word meditating. So why is it using that word? How do we tie into this idea of meditating on scripture. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about what the word meditation means in the Hebrew, why it matters. Uh, We're going to talk, it's very practical. How do we do this? How do we meditate on scripture? Then I want to see if we can just make a little practical example out of scripture with all of this. Um, And hopefully, the hope is that this can get you started doing this on your own tomorrow, you know, that we can start meditating on scripture as a church, uh, as individuals. So let's open up verse verse 2. His delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. I told you last week that this word meditate, uh, the literal Hebrew, the, the literal translation is to, to murmur or to like have like a low tone of voice. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, this is the noise uh, used for when doves coo, right? I don't know about you guys, but there's like a, you know, a million doves in Portales. They all live in my yard, um, and, and yeah, they make a mess of my back porch and all the other stuff. But you guys know afternoons in Portales when you just hear that low coo noise of just this constant like, yeah, that, that's what this Hebrew word means. The other way that it's used to describe uh, in Isaiah 31.4, the Hebrew uses this word to describe the noise a lion makes over its food as it's eating its food. Um, so I, I apologize for this, but I think it'll help you remember it. Uh, it's, it's this noise right here. Right? Do you, you want that again? No, we, we won't do that again. But that's the idea, right? That, that a lion's just sitting there e- eating. That's the idea of how we meditate on Scripture. It's painting a picture of, of that. 
And so when you get to passages like Joshua 1, a lot of times when we read Joshua 1, we, we pick up on the, the constant re- repetitious phrase of be strong and courageous, right? If you've read Joshua 1, this is a, a line that's going to be said all throughout that, that passage. But how is Joshua supposed to be strong and courageous? V- verse 8, it says, uh, this instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to, that's the, the word, meditate, on it day and night so that you might carefully observe everything written in it. Hey, Joshua, how are you going to be strong and courageous? Oh, by meditating on what God has had written down for you. And how often do you do it? I mean, like, like a lion eating a meal, right? You just, you just do it when it's available and when you can, day and night, you're, you're thinking about this. So why, why meditate on, on this? Because I think that's another thing that's just worth talking about really quickly. Because a lot of times what we'll do is we'll say, well, why, why meditate on, on the Bible? And our answer, we'll go to 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 3.16, for all scriptures God breathed. Uh, and that's true, and that's good, and that's wonderful. Um, but we kind of create this circular reasoning of I believe scripture is authoritative because scripture says it's authoritative because I believe scripture is authoritative because it says it's authoritative. So, and that, that's good, but you could go to uh, Muslims, and they would say the same thing about the Quran, or you could go to Mormons, and they would say the same thing about the Book of Mormon. So why is it that we believe this is authoritative and worth meditating on? And I came across this quote this week, and I, I liked it, so I wanted to give it to you. Ultimately, our trust in the Bible comes from our trust in Jesus. I don't trust Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust Jesus. I love him and have decided to follow him. So if Jesus acts and talks as if the Bible is good and trustworthy and authoritative, then I will too. Even if my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. I really like that one. Why do we believe this? Because this is what Jesus read. This is what Jesus loved. This is what Jesus listened to. This is what Jesus meditated on. So why are we doing it? Because Jesus did that. So all, all of these things that we're going to talk about here is how, how do we meditate on it? How do we put this into practical application? And please hear me out because I need to hear this stuff just as much as you do because all of this, how we meditate, is pretty contrary to popular kind of American culture. So how, how do we root into the gospel? We root into the gospel by meditating on the story. How do we meditate on the story? Number one, we slow down. We slow down. And, and I think, honestly, I could just do an entire sermon over this because nothing's slow anymore, right? You guys know this. Because if, if you have slow internet, what do you do? You get mad and you call the internet company because I paid for faster internet than this. What's going on? Why is it so slow when you get frustrated and so you just go get new internet? It's a slow drive through at McDonald's. I'm not going back there until they get that drive through figured out. I don't have time to wait in line for this. Slow traffic at the square. What's the best way around the square? I don't want to wait in that line at that red light. Do you guys do this on a day-to-day basis? Things are slow, so I'm going to do anything and everything I can to, to make things more efficient, to get around the, the slowness. But, but next time you read through the Gospels, I, just, just look for this. Go and read and see how often Jesus is in a hurry in the Gospels. You'll find he's never in a hurry. And it's really interesting. Because he's always got places to be and things to go and, and people to see, and that's always there. But never once when something interrupts Jesus is it an inconvenience for him. Never once does he say, I don't have time to deal with you right now. I have a million other things to do. By the way, I am also God incarnate, and I'm a little bit more important than you, so I don't have time. 
Like Jesus is never in a hurry. He's always just going with the flow. He's traveling. He's letting things interrupt his day-to-day life. He's loving people all throughout that. And it might be easy for you to say, well, yeah, Philip, but that was 2,000 years ago. Like, Jesus also didn't have an iPhone, you know? And maybe. But have you taken, like, two seconds to think about all the time savers we have now in our day-to-day lives? Like, all the things that save us just efficiency and time. Now, I know some of you are still a little old-fashioned and you like having like actual fires in your house, but I don't have to worry about that. I have this really cool thing that I just go and push a button on my wall. If you're, if you're really, you know, like hip, you can get it where it's on your phone. You can just push a button on your phone and like magic heat comes out from the floorboards of your house. And you're like, man, this is good. I don't have to go cut wood or worry about, I, like, I don't even know how it's made. It just comes out, right? You know, there, there's magic heat in, in the world or, uh, you know, we're going to get ready this week and travel to, to Dallas, we're going to jump on an airplane in Clovis, fly seven-hour drive. It'll be, you know, an hour to, to Dallas. We can just travel like that pretty much now. There, there's so much more time that's saved out of stuff like, like that. Um, there, there's alarm clocks now, right? So you can just wake yourself up at any moment. Did you know, uh, I learned this this week as I was studying through all of this, um, that 150 years ago before electricity was invented, you know how long the average American slept for? 11 hours a night. The average American slept 11 hours a night before electricity, which makes sense, right? Because, like, what are you going to do when it gets dark outside? Stare at a candle? Like, that'll be really entertaining. No, go to bed and then wake up and work tomorrow because that's what you have to do. And so now what's the average sleep of an American? It's supposed to be eight hours, but how many of us actually get, like, eight hours of sleep a night? We have more time to do things than we've ever had of any generation prior to us, and yet every single person... And they've done studies on this, feel like they don't have enough time, that we have less time now to do what we want to do than what we've ever had before. Why why is that? You guys ever said, you know, I wish I just had more hours in the day? If I could only just like four or five more hours in the day, I could get more done. Like that would finally give me enough time. We would just fill that time up like we do the time we already have. Like our, our problem is not a lack of time. Our problem is that we fill our time with so much busyness. And I don't think the biblical model for meditation gives us much room for that. It demands we slow down. And so we, we have this, right, carpe diem, seize the day mentality. You better make every second worth all it's worth. And Did you know that's not a Bible verse? Do you know what is a Bible verse? Blessed is the one who meditates on God's instruction day and night. Meditation demands we slow down. And, and I think this is probably going to be a sermon series that I come back to this summer because I think it's worth investing in in modern America. How do we slow down? Let me just give you some practical stuff. Um, and, and again, this is not me preaching at you. This is more me preaching to myself. There's some of this stuff that I want to try to implement in my own life um, just to see how it goes. But a uh, cu- couple things to, to slow down. Um, maybe, maybe consider if uh, you have your own alarm clock, you don't need your phone, charging your phone in another room so that the first thing you don't wake up to in the morning is your cell phone. Because if you're anything like me, the very first thing I do is I wake up and I check the time on my phone. And since my phone's already open, might as well check my email. And since I've checked my email, might as well check Instagram. And before I've even done anything, before I've even gotten out of bed, what am I doing? I'm scrolling through my phone. I do this like every day. And the Bible's calling us to slow down and your phone's telling you to speed up, do all the multitask things you, you can do. So try to put it in another room. And then before you go check it, spend 10 minutes in Scripture. I don't know. Just, just spend some time slowing, slowing down. Uh, eliminate distractions. 
Um, I, I struggle with this a lot, but just wanting to multitask everything I do. Just, hey, let's do everything at once because if the more I can get done, the more efficient I can be. Please, please don't do that, especially with Scripture. Especially with Scripture. Eliminate distractions. Let that be the one thing you do just, just for a few minutes and, and focus in on, on Scripture. Uh, trust, trust the Spirit as you dwell on the text. Make, open it up with prayer. Right, God, help me to focus on the text. Help me to avoid distractions. Help me to just meditate on this. And then where I would say is just do it. I'm not telling you you need to start with an hour a day. Start where you are. You know, if, if you're going to go run this 5K coming up on the 19th, I hope you've already trained for it. Because if you just decide on the 19th you're going to get up and run a 5K that day, it might be a little rough for you. Just, just open up your Bible. Five, ten minutes. M- meditate on it. Slow down. When life is chaotic, make a point to slow down and meditate on Scripture. The second thing I would say, just practically, how, how do we meditate on this, is uh, I would say surrender control. M- most of my life, when uh, the Bible has been presented to me, it's been presented as kind of this, this self-help book of like an instructional encyclopedia that you, you go and you open it up and you turn to a specific place whenever you need something. And so I, I have very... And they're good memories of, like, getting my first FCA Bible. I got saved through FCA uh, when I was 13 years old, and then getting that Bible. And in the back of the Bible, they had, like, where to turn when you're feeling sad. And it would give you, like, a verse reference. And you would go and turn there, and it would say, the Lord's near to the brokenhearted. And you're like, oh, that's really good. And you go in the back, and it'd say, where to turn when you're feeling mad. And it all, like, rhymed for some reason. I don't know. And, like, you would open it up, and don't let the sun go down on your anger. Oh, Okay. And that's good. I'm not, I'm not saying that's, that's a bad way to read Scripture necessarily. But if that's the only interaction you have with Scripture, how often are you picking up on the stories and the things that are happening under the surface? You're not because you're reading fortune cookies, right? When, when the Bible is much more than that. It's this unified story that's telling this, this unified reality of how God interacts with man and saves mankind. And that's the ideal reader that Psalms 1 is talking about. That we come to Scripture not to, to just find answers, but to surrender control. When we treat Scripture as an encyclopedia, uh, where we gather up a list of verses to prove whatever point we're looking to prove, we often miss the unified story that it's trying to tell us. And I don't know about you guys, but so often in my life, the, the way the Bible's been presented as this argumentative, here's the two sides of the issue, what does the Bible say? And so it'll be like Calvinism versus Arminianism, and here's the verses that support Calvinism, and, and Arminianism will be like, here's the verses that support or, uh, old earth, new earth, and here's the verses that support old earth, and well, here's the, uh, you guys, have you guys studied the Bible this way? I, maybe this is my own experience. And what I found is I gain a lot of information but I very rarely see the big picture of what God's trying to convey. Because when it comes to the Bible, what God is calling us to do is to surrender our control and our agendas and all these things we're looking for answers for and just to trust him with it. Because so often we get caught up in the debates and the culture wars and rather than letting the Bible lead us to where it wants us to go, we try to use it as ammunition to prove our points. And you will only find, I think, delight in meditating on the destruction or the instructions of God when you surrender that agenda and when you surrender your control and allow that to be the cadence by which you, you march. So how, how do you do this? How do you surrender control? And, and what I would say is just find ways to read large portions of Scripture. Daily devotionals are great where it gives you a little verse and commentary. That's awesome. But find some time just to open the Bible and read it. 
you know, st- start in Genesis if you want. Start in First and Second Samuel are great. And just read, read it like a book. Uh, they make things out there called reader's Bibles. And, and they're Bibles without the chapter headings and verses. Um, because, just, just so you know, like, they didn't write those in. Those came later for quick references. So just read it. Read the entire book of James. We did that in my Bible study last Monday night. We just, we just read it. It was fun. We're going to do First John when it comes, not tomorrow, but next Monday. Just read big chunks of, of Scripture and let it set. You don't have time to read it? Listen to it. Get an audio Bible. Uh, get an app on your phone and listen to it when you drive to work or whatever. But find ways to internalize this, this Scripture. And, and remember what the Bible is. This is ancient Jewish meditation literature. It's going to be weird sometimes. You're going to have to stop and think about it from time to time. You might have to stop and ask somebody. Do it. Find ways to integrate this into your life. Talk with your spouse about it. Talk with your friends. Ask someone to coffee and say, hey, man, I was reading the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's really sad. I don't talk about it. Talk about it. Like, let it, let it set in and surrender control with it. And the question is, like, how, how long does that take to happen? For the Bible to change your thinking habits and challenge your sinful notions. And well, the answer is a lifetime. So start now and let it work on you throughout the rest of your life. And with that, I would add this final one that is seek formation, not information. At the, uh, at the risk of getting on a soapbox again, uh, we, we live in a time where the world worships information. Like our world particularly worships information and we do that because information is directly tied to power, right? Because if you have the secret information that no one else has, you can monetize that, sell it, start your own company, do whatever, because you have the information to make it work. This is why currently one of the big debates right now in, in modern world is who controls the media. That's a big debate because whoever controls the media controls the information, and who controls the information controls the narrative. And Are you guys tired of hearing about stuff like this? Because this is what we're talking about all the time. But on, on the same note, like, I've been trained since I was little to read for information. Like, since I had learned to read in third grade, my teachers were training me for standardized tests where you would read, like, a little passage, and then you would have multiple-choice questions that would, like, what's a good title for this passage? A, do you guys take tests like that? So every ounce of reading that I have is all about informing myself about this. And I'm not saying reading the Bible for information is wrong, but, but again, let me just ask, do you know people that have incredible head knowledge of Scripture and their heart is not in the right place? There's something about reading Scripture for information that, that may be good, but it just doesn't get us there. I say what God's calling us to do is to read the Bible for formation, to, to change us from the inside out. These stories we read, the the genealogies, the wisdom proverbs, they're not just a grab bag of information. They're eternal truths about God and humanity and sin and love and forgiveness and relationships and work ethic. And it's all made to form us into the image of God. And when this is all said and done, there isn't going to be a standardized test that says, what would have been a really good title for the book of James if it hadn't been called James. Like, there's not a multiple choice standardized test. What God is looking for is for you to be formed by this. Because there may not be a quiz when you get to heaven, but there are going to be things you're going to deal with in the future in this life that's going to demand not just information, but it's going to demand formation. 
It's like uh, whenever I was in college, my, my car broke down, and the only car that I could get within my budget was a, uh, a Zuzu Ombre. It's like a little truck, but it was a stick shift. And like, I could have spent hours, right, researching on YouTube how to drive a stick shift and learning to drive a stick shift. Do you want to know the way I learned to drive a stick shift? I stalled it in traffic and got honked at four or five times. And eventually, you know, you get honked at enough, you start learning how to get out of first gear, right? You, you learn how to do it. Like, go be formed by this. Well, what if I mess up? Cool. It'll reform you the next time. Like, let it, let it change you. Um, you. You may not know this. I don't tell many people this. But uh, this last Christmas, right, I did a sermon series over Isaiah 9, 6. And, and we talked about his name shall be a wonderful God, mighty counselor, or Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that sermon series. I had actually preached that sermon series prior in Socorro. I was like, I'll just re-preach it. It'll be pretty easy. I won't have to spend that much time on my sermons. So I got out my first sermon uh, and started looking over it. And I was like, who let me preach this? Like, who allowed this? And I had to like rewrite the whole thing from scratch because I had learned more since then. And God was changing my formation and the way I understood things. And so uh, I remember kind of realizing this and going to, to an older guy that I really love and expect and saying like, hey, like, when does this stop? When do you stop feeling this way? And he's like, man, I still feel that way. Like, there's just still constantly God changing and reforming me. Let God do it. Read the scriptures for formation. Let God challenge you in things. Uh, the, the way I, I've heard it said, and I like this one, is that reading scripture is not about mastery. It's about letting God master me. So let it master you. So let's do this. This is where we'll close out. Pra practical example, and we'll go faster this. I just want to point it all out to you. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8, uh, Deuteronomy 8 Moses is giving his final speech before, uh, Israel, to Israel before he dies. Um, and he's, he's reminding them of everything God's brought them through. Uh, they're, wonder, they're wondering in the wilderness and how God saved them. And now he's going to point them to where they're going. And so he says, carefully follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase. You may enter and take possession of the land the Lord swore to your ancestors. We're getting ready to go in the promised land. Guys, let's remember where we've come from. So Moses says, remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now that's a really weird passage, because you're like, wait a minute, what words come from the mouth of the Lord? They, they lived on manna. And so what is, what is Moses doing? He's been meditating on all of this, and he's saying, guys, what has God taught us coming through this whole wilderness wanderings? Well, he taught us that he's the one we lean in and rely on. That even when it seems that we can't provide for ourselves, that when it seems there's not enough food to go around, when it seems that, that God is good enough and he can provide, so our faith goes not in the food we eat, but in the God who provides that food. You, you, you see that meditating on it a little bit, right? Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has gotten baptized. He takes off into the wilderness to pray and fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Instantly connects us back to the 40-year wilderness wandering of the Israelites, right? So, so now Jesus is doing his wilderness wanderings, 40 days, 40 nights, fasting. Uh, and, and so Satan's going to appear to him and tempt him. So Jesus was led by the Spirit, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Again, probably one of the most biggest understatements of Scripture. 
Uh, then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, It is written. And what does he do? He quotes from Deuteronomy 8. Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, if you've been meditating on Scripture up until this point, you've seen this pattern, right? Even in Genesis 4 of, of Cain and Abel, and, and God comes to Cain when Cain's frustrated and says, Cain, sin is standing at your door. It's crouched at your door, waiting to attack. You must rule over it. And what does Cain do? He fails. And you start tracking this story through, through the Bible because Noah fails, Abraham fails, Isaac fails, Jacob fails, David fails, Moses fails over and over again. And this is Jesus' moment of sin crouching at the door. And the question is, is Jesus going to succeed where everyone else has failed? And he does. He, he stands up. He rules over sin. How? Because he's meditated on Scripture. Because he's, he's internalized and been formed by God's Word. So, so what does a, a sermon, a speech from a guy that's been dead for a thousand years that has to do with wilderness wanderings have to do with Jesus? Is Jesus trying to just memorize Scripture to stick it to Satan? Is he trying to win an argument? I don't think so. I think Jesus is just so internalized and been shaped by Deuteronomy 8 that when Satan tempts him, it's just what comes out of Jesus. Hey, remember God says not to worry about that, but just to trust in his word. So how often did Jesus have to read Deuteronomy 8 to do this? And my answer would be probably more than once. I don't know, but I would bet the last 30 years of his life has had this passage poured into him. Jesus quotes from Moses' speech because he's meditated on that speech and been shaped by the reality of the Father's provision in times of need. Jesus' ability to resist Satan is in direct proportion with Jesus' time meditating on and being formed by Scripture. And it's that heart of formation, that this total submittance to God's eternal plan that leads Jesus to rule over sin for his entire life and then lay that life down for us. This is what the gospel points us to. That Jesus would do that. He would rule over sin the way humanity intended, was intended to, and designed to. And then he would go and lay down his life for the forgiveness of our sins for those of us who have not done that. So that we could put our faith in him, be redeemed, set free from our sin. Not just so that we could go to heaven when we die, but, but so that we can actually start living life the same way Jesus did. By meditating on Scripture. And this is exactly what Psalm 1 promises, that the person that delights and meditates on it will be like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. So, so where, where are you this, this week? And, and might I just challenge you, just to, to find a way to have a non-judgmental conversation, um, that might be with your spouse, might be with a friend, you may not know who, and you may just need to ask somebody to go get coffee this week. I don't know. But just to have this conversation of, hey, where am I meditating on Scripture? Maybe it's, man, I'm doing really good right now. Like God is just showing me cool new things in Scripture every day. I'm loving it. Maybe it's, man, I'm just so busy, and I've not taken time to slow down. But, but confide in that with somebody and, and challenge each other to, to do that and to meditate on Scripture together. And then take the next step. 
Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's, I don't know. I'm not here to tell you the formula for solving this equation. I'm just here to say, if we want to be the church God designed us to be, if we want to be gospel-rooted, if we want to proclaim to Portales that there is hope and there is salvation and there is a way to live life where God saves the world and we get to trust in that, it's going to demand that we start by meditating on this. We can't do it without it. So where do you start? And maybe you start right now by saying, Philip, I've never really even known Jesus, and I want to do that. Come pray with me. I'd love to pray with you about it. If you know that, then maybe find a time this week to meditate on Scripture and just let it start to form you. Slow down. Surrender control to it. And look for formation, not information. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for just how glorious and wonderful it is. And God, I, I pray that you would help us to be a church that seeks to be formed by this. God, there's so much to it and so much that we need within it, but life's so busy, it's easy to get distracted. Help us to, to not be distracted by that, but to follow you, to be a church, a place where people can slow down and give up control and just learn to be formed by the God-breathed word that we have before us. Thank you for all of that. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.